This is John Quinn. This is Law Disrupted. Today we are speaking with my partner, Dennis Horansky, who is the head of our firm's sovereign disputes practice and co-head of our global asset recovery practice. I used to be able to simply say that Dennis was based in our New York office, but ever since the pandemic, he's kind of been based, semi-based, also in our Salt Lake City office and lives in uh, the beautiful mountain town of Park City, Utah. Dennis, is that a fair description of uh, whereabouts and where people can track you down when you're not traveling the globe? It is a fair description, although I was going to say that uh, I feel like much of the time I live in airplanes. I know the feeling. <laughs> I, maybe not as much as you, but uh, I, I still feel like I spend an awful lot of time in airplanes. So, Dennis, we're going to talk today about sovereign disputes, which I, by that I mean disputes with countries, primarily suing countries. Uh, and I know that's a lot of what you do. And in general, can you give us the, tell us what the landscape is that we're going to be talking about? What kinds of sovereign disputes are there out there and, and which you deal with? Sure. So, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of different flavors and stripes of sovereign disputes. Um, I won't get into all of them, but um, there's really three buckets that uh, I see and that you know we as a firm see a lot. Um, the first is um, disputes arising out of sovereign debt, and then um, collection of those cases. Collection is really where all the excitement happens because it's not hard to get a judgment or an arbitral award after sovereign defaults. Um, the second bucket is uh, um, investor state disputes. We do a lot of that work. I don't do the arbitration work myself, but we have plenty of partners who do. Um, those are situation is. Investor invests half a billion dollars to build a hydrocarbon extraction facility in country X. Um, socialist government comes in and expropriates it or imposes a 95% tax on revenues or something like that. Right? And while the global treaty regime is eroding, it's still the case that, you know, in many cases, the um, investor investors country and the country where the expropriation happened will be party to a treaty and the treaty allows the investors to bring a special kind of arbitral proceeding um, to obtain recovery for the expropriation or the exorbitant tax or what have you. Um, as I said before, we do a lot of that kind of work. I don't do the arbitrations. What I do do and where a lot of the exciting or interesting stuff is going on in this space is in collecting on those awards. And that's going to be a refrain um, because it's it's a little harder to get an arbitral award in an expropriation case than it is to get a judgment when a sovereign defaults on debt. But collection's always the hard part. Right. If, if I could just stop you for a minute before you get to the third flavor, just to make sure we're clear on these uh, investor state claims. As I understand it, these derive from a treaty entered into between country A and country B, where they each agree, I assume they are reciprocal, they each agree that, look, if one of our citizens or domiciled uh, investor entities makes an investment in your country uh, and they think they have some basis for a claim against you, country B, uh, that they, you agree 
to uh, participate in an arbitration where our home you know citizen uh investor can bring a claim against you and that's an investor treaty claim against you to recover for what they what they perceive as uh you know mistreatment loss of value expropriation etc that that's essentially the scenario isn't it that is that's exactly right um and there i mean 20 years ago there were many 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 treaties like that in place around the world the um i mean in sort of this era of economic nationalism um we've seen a lot of countries retreat from the regime and you know, i'm concerned that maybe the united states is starting to back off of its support but you know that's a different conversation but your description of the trees is exactly right well that's an interesting subject and we're going to get to that but, but just to set up the discussion here what is the third type of uh sovereign dispute that you're referring to but well the third i guess i would it's it's litigation against sovereigns that you know doesn't derive uh, derive from sovereign debt so there's a lot of flavors of that but um you know a couple of good examples cases that we're doing um um we've got a big a, a case on behalf of four billion dollar holders of four billion dollars of credit suisse at1s that were written down to zero effectively expropriated by a swiss regulator um last spring and so you know, we've got proceedings pending in the swiss courts on that case now and um we may end up bringing that litigation into the united states at some point maybe we can talk about that later um and uh um and then i mean i guess related I mean, you, you only see this in the united states but we have laws that are in the u.s that are aimed at making it easy for victims of terrorist acts or victims of uh um, aggressive acts funded by state sponsors of terrorism um, to sue those states in the U.S. courts and get judgments, and um, the regime for enforcing those judgments in the U.S. Um, it's a lot easier to do than it is for a garden variety litigation against a sovereign state. So those are what I call the three buckets. Yeah, and on the on the last type of the the terrorist claim, we'll have a chance, I think, to talk about the case. I think your name is on the complaint that we just filed against Iran on behalf of a number of victims of the Hamas uh, massacre on last October 7th, which is a very important case, which has gotten a lot of attention. But let's go, let's walk through these three types of uh, sovereign disputes and begin first with sovereign debt. Uh, what, what are some of the hot issues in sovereign debt litigation that you're seeing right now that you're involved in? Uh, and I know we're going to want to talk about, and it'll come up in each of these, how on earth you recover against a country when you've gotten a judgment. You said sometimes it's not so hard to get the judgment. I assume a lot of times a country's simply just default. Uh, but getting collecting on them is, is something altogether. But why don't you begin uh, wherever you what, wherever uh, you think is appropriate to talk about challenges now that you're seeing in the sovereign debt disputes world. Sure. So, well, let me maybe set the stage by just describing, you know, what sovereign debt is and how you end up in courts um, after there's a default, and then we can go from there. Um, so, countries have been borrowing money um, since at least the 12th century. Um, the in in like what's now Italy, Italian city states used to borrow from their citizens 
there's a long history of um, countries borrowing uh, money. Um, in the last century or so, um, while you know there, it, it takes a number of forms, you know, like there's a fairly standard form that's developed where um, either banks or more recently uh, private investors will lend um, to a sovereign state and um, the condition of one of the conditions of lending is that the sovereign agree that they can be sued um, in a jurisdiction where you know they the creditors feel that uh, they'll get a fair hearing. Very often, that's in the U.S. or New York courts, um, and they waive sovereign immunity both from you know the lawsuit to um, recover principal and interest on defaulted debt, and once there's a judgment. They waive sovereign immunity for enforcement proceedings that you might bring anywhere in the world where you could find assets. And then in countries like the United States that have a special regime, uh, sovereign immunity regime for assets themselves, um, they waive that kind of immunity. And so that's the setup. Um, you know, the, probably it's still the case that the most famous sovereign debt default litigation in the U.S. at least was. Um, the Argentini arose out of Argentina's default in 2001. A lot of great stories in that case. But, uh, um, I mean, what's, I guess, made the cases more interesting over time. Um, first, you know, in the early days when I started doing this 22 years ago, there were very few people active in the space. And there are now a lot of people who invest, um, in sovereign debt. Um, they're very like there are a lot more lawyers involved in the space, and because of you know what um, some describe as the holdout problem—that is, um, investors choosing to litigate um, even after a sovereign has agreed with most of their creditors to restructure the debt um, amicably. Um, there have been you know increasingly more sophisticated. Um, provisions added to sovereign um, debt instruments um, to um, to mitigate that holdout problem. Um, the best example, or the most well known example, are what are called collective action clauses. What collective action clauses do is um, they say if a supermajority of bondholders has consented to a restructuring, then that restructuring, the terms of that restructuring are binding even on people who didn't consent. Um, and so to your, to what I think is your core question, which is sort of what's really interesting that's going on in sovereign debt litigation now in 2024, it's all about, uh, um, you know, what I would characterize as sort of abuses and, um, you know, bending the rules to cram more dissenting creditors into restructuring. Um, there's been legislation proposed in the in, in New York where you know, New York law governs a lot of sovereign debt and you know a lot of sovereign debt instruments can have consent to jurisdiction of the New York courts. So the New York New York legislature's considered provisions to try to bend the rules in favor of the sovereigns. Um, there's going to be a lot of litigation that arises out of the enforceability of those. Um, I've been talking about that for a few years now. Um, and, you know, also, I mean, there's a, if I can get into examples, there's a case in New York now um, brought by a creditor of Sri Lanka 
Um, you know, Sri Lanka agreed in the bond instruments to be sued in New York, weighed sovereign immunity, all that. Um, but they were in the middle of uh, restructuring discussions with their creditors at the time the suit was brought. Um, and uh, but if the creditor was completely in his rights for like bringing the suit. Um, all that notwithstanding, you know, Sri Lanka was hoping to put off any enforcement effort by this creditor um, until after they'd succeeded in restructuring their debt and maybe, you know, cramming this one creditor down into the restructuring. And so they asked the court to stay the proceedings while they restructured, uh, which is really undermining the that creditors agreed upon contractual rights. Um, maybe not surprising that Sri Lanka would do that, but what was really surprising is that the United States submitted a amicus brief in that case in which they supported Sri Lanka's position. This, this was just within the last month, right? Uh, no, the Sri Lanka wasn't in the last month. But, like We'll talk about Spain in a minute. That's the last month. But the, Sri Lanka was a few months ago. Um, but the court stayed the case in the like with the blessing of the United States government in what I would uh, to me is uh, I mean it's, it's complete it, it, it's impeding the contractual rights of the of the creditor it's concerned okay well let me let me challenge you here for uh, a second Dennis um, <clears throat> there is talk about a ongoing sovereign debt crisis in the world I think you have written about that you have used that phrase yourself. Uh, think of these very poor countries that find themselves very extended. Hasn't there been a history, something called the the Paris Club or whatever you call it, of way of trying to work things out for these poor countries? And this takes place in the backdrop of, you said, I think you alluded to this, uh, investors investing in sovereign debt with a view to distress investors with a basically an opportunistic view that they're going to assert claims and try to use leverage. Uh, to get value buying up uh, bonds or debt, which is trading at very depreciated values and being opportunistic. Some would refer to some of these firms very impolitely as maybe used to say vulture funds. Uh, and you have funders who are funding these cases. So you have this whole phalanx, this whole industry that it seems sometimes like they're going after these poor countries. And that's not the way it used to be. Tell me why that's wrong. Right. I'm not saying any of what you say just said is wrong. Is wrong. Um, I mean, I I think we have to be sensitive to the plight that sovereign debtor countries are in. Um, you know, I, I I don't think any of like my regular clients would disagree with the statement that uh, you know they're all in favor of um, a regime for reorderly restructuring of debt. the The, the issue I have with it is. Um, we've now had more than 20 years of um, diligent efforts to um, develop uh, provisions, contractual provisions that go into these sovereign debt instruments to sort of set a agreed upon kind of like playing field and set of rules governing the way all of this works. And I mean, I, what troubles me is that um, um, the United States is and and multilaterals like the IMF and the World Bank are advocating for you know bending the agreed upon rules to achieve you know what they view as being a desired result. I mean, whether you agree or disagree with the proposition that the result is a desired result, 
All I'm saying is that it's troubling that governmental, I mean, the governments and, you know, multilateral institutions with a lot of persuasive sway um, are weighing in to bend the rules after those rules have been meticulously negotiated. Okay. All right. Well, you, you referred to uh, the Sri Lanka case. I mean, are there any other cases that they are going on now or that you're involved in that you think are particularly noteworthy or instructive? Uh, well, so, I mean, the, the only case that's going on right now where, you know, we're seeing this sort of bend the rules phenomenon is the Sri Lanka case. But uh, going back just a couple of years, or I guess it's uh, four years now, time flies. Um, I represented a large group of bondholders in restructuring negotiations with Argentina. Um, and in the course of those negotiations, um, Argentina threatened to, um, you know, bend the, bend the rule governing the restructuring conversation to create leverage for themselves. Right. And, you know, we, we had an exchange of letters and we almost had litigation over whether Argentina could bend the rules in that way. Right? And then a few months later, Argentina sort of backed off there. Um, I, I like to think that uh, our threatening letters were persuasive, but um, who knows? Well, you you you've been litigating with Argentina for a couple of decades. I think there hasn't been a day in the last twenty two years I haven't had a case against. So. Somehow, somehow, I think you're going to not be taking your tango lessons in Buenos Aires anytime <laughs> soon. I, I'm not sure you're welcome there, Dennis. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Maybe under the existing or the, under the new president, but there's certainly been times that I wasn't. But uh, but so what I was going to say is that. Uh, um, Ecuador, almost, almost immediately after what I just talked about, Ecuador decided to take a page out of Argentina's book. And, you know, they made good on the threat that Argentina had only kind of threatened. Um, but there was a much broader consent. Or they, at, by that point, there was very broad consent for Ecuador's restructuring. A handful of creditors um, brought suit to challenge Ecuador, what, what, in my view, was Ecuador break, breaking its own rules. Um, and that suit was unsuccessful. Um, I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of this, um, and especially if New York enacts um, one or more of the, um, the bills that have been proposed um, to try to kind of like tip the scales in favor of sovereigns and against the uh, against creditors. There's going to be a lot of litigation here. I expect I'll be involved in it. Who are the forces or the, you know, behind this effort in New York to create this legislation to cut slack for sovereigns? You think of sort of New York and Wall Street and the financial community there is representing a lot of these creditors. It seems surprising to me that this effort is coming from New York. Uh, well, the, I mean, the, the support, the support comes from, like behind the scenes support comes from a number of sources. There's a charitable organization called the Jubilee Foundation, which is associated with the Catholic Church, um, that's been, you know, a proponent of debt relief initiatives going back, you know, at least 30 years. Um, and they've supported a number of these legislative proposals in New York. Um, there's sort of a growing contingent within the IMF and the World Bank and academics that, uh, um, you know, do a lot of consulting work with the IMF and the World Bank. We're also supportive of these kinds of legislative measures, right? But what's changed is that in 2020, after, um, you know, the 
like 2020 is when we first had a democratic trifecta in, in Albany. Um, and there's a, you know, a contingent of progressive Latino voters, um, local, like mostly living north of New York City, um, who um, I think mainly because of things, the way things have gone down in Puerto Rico's restructuring became like they, they, they adopted this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been like major proponents of these legislative proposals, and they have a lot of influence in Albany, mm-hmm. just given the complexion of the electorate in New York now. Mm-hmm. All right, before we move to on to investor state disputes, are there any more uh, key issues or cases going on relating to sovereign debt disputes that we should mention? All right, well, um, I mean, we haven't really even got, gotten into most of the like interesting litigation other than Sri Lanka, but. Uh, I mean, where all the action is really now is in uh, with Venezuela and its state-owned energy company, PDVSA. Um, there are lots of litigation brought by bondholders um, trying to kind of get in on or sort of get on the boat um, in like recovering some of the proceeds of the sale of Venezuela's largest, I mean, probably its only significant asset in the United States. Which is a uh, an entity called PDV Holding, which is the indirect parent of Citgo. Right. Oh. So you know when you talk about selling PDV Holding, what you're really talking about is selling Citgo. Right. Um, and there are because they kind of they won the race to the courthouse. They they beat the bondholders to the courthouse. There's a whole l- list of um, holders of in arbitration awards against Venezuela, um, who have spoken for essentially all of the pro- all the proceeds um, of that sale, which is expected to happen sometime this year. So there's been litigation in Delaware recently about the bondholder saying you should you, you should set aside the statutory priority regime where under which the people who get to the courthouse first and get an attachment first have priority over everybody else and you know the proceeds should be shared um evenly among all creditors like that uh, that motion was just brought a couple of weeks ago judge in delaware i think correctly rejected that motion just last week um so that's going on and then there's litigation going on in uh, in the new york state courts there's just argument in the new york court of appeals which is the highest court it's, it's what you would think of as the Supreme Court, the highest court of New York, um, um, brought by um, holders of some secured bonds that were issued by Venezuela under the Maduro administration. Um, that's important because the United States doesn't represent, uh, recognize the Maduro government. Um, and so uh, Venezuela has taken the position that um, because the United States doesn't recognize the Maduro government, the this the, the collateral pledge um, underlying these bonds um, was not legitimate, um, and it shouldn't be respected by the U.S. courts. And I mean, it, essentially, what the bond what, what Venezuela is asking the court to do is say bondholders can't rely on the reps and warranties and the bond documents; they have to do their own independent deep dive into the local law of the borrower, constitutional law of the borrower, all of those kinds of things 
Otherwise, you, they acquire the bonds at risk. Um, and I think I'm pretty confident that the New York Court of Appeals is going to side with the creditors in that case. But if it doesn't, um, the implications of that case are going to be very far reaching. This sounds like it's a dispute between creditors relating to who gets the proceeds from the sale of the Citgo parent company. Is that essentially what we're talking about? Right, well, that, that the, the first thing I was talking about, that's exactly what it's about. And right. um, the people who won the race to the courthouse are saying first in time, first in right is the rule and you should uphold it. And then the people who lost the race to the courthouse are saying that's not fair um, and the proceeds should be distributed evenly among everybody. But what are the consequences as to the second problem, the second scenario you talk about? If the court decides, uh, adopts the uh, Venezuelan position that you can't rely on the reps and warranties because your government doesn't even recognize the Maduro government, you got to do your own diligence. Uh, that seems like uh, really does change the world from an investor standpoint. It, it changes the world profoundly from an investor standpoint. I mean, it's always the case when a private party decides to do business with sovereign state that they've got to do some level of diligence. Um, I mean, that goes without saying. But um, up to now, I mean, there's a, it has been very clear, at least as a matter of New York law, that uh, when a sovereign makes representations in, I mean, whether it's bond documents, whether it's a concession contract, you know, whatever the nature of the commercial agreement is, when the sovereign makes representations that um, the signatories had authority to bind the sovereign and, and waive sovereign immunity and things of that nature, um, at least under New York law, investors have been allowed to rely on that. Um, and if the, um, if the New York Court of Appeals agrees with Venezuela's position, um, in this case, and as I said, I don't think they will. But if they do, then it's going to turn. It, it, it's it's probably going to cause um, contractual like, investors to stop choosing New York law as governing law, right? But uh, in the meantime, it's going to, you know, it's going to upend all kinds of ex investor expectations about you know what they can re reasonably rely on and what sort of diligence that they need to do before they can make an investment in a foreign country. And it ultimately hurts the countries because it makes investing um, in those countries harder. It makes investing in those countries more expensive because it's more risky. You know, investors will, I mean, certainly require a um, greater sort of yield on the investment. It, it's just bad for the whole, if you believe in sort of internationalism and you believe in, um, creating a global regime where, like, it, it, that makes it easy and facilitates investment across borders. It's bad for that regime. Right. Okay. Any other uh, really interesting sovereign debt cases going on now uh, or issues that we should talk about? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's sort of any kind of particularly noteworthy issues. I mean, we've got a um, a large case against Argentina. These are bonds that went into default in 2001. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've successfully attached, uh, a little over $300 million to satisfy the claim, which is about half a billion dollars. Um, we just argued that our, our partner, fantastic appellate advocate, uh, John Bash just argued that in the second circuit. And, um, and I think we'll prevail. 
Um, but uh, um, it, while it's important, it's certainly important to the clients. I don't know that the implications are far-reaching for other sovereign debt cases. All right. Well, let's let's turn now to the the second category that you reference: uh, investor state disputes. What particular issues are you seeing there, and, and what cases are you involved in? All right. Well, the I mean, to me, the most interesting. Well, I'm not going to talk about the issues in the treaty arbitrations themselves because that's not really what I do, right? And we've got plenty of partners who do that. And I think you've had Philippe Pinsole or David Orda or some of the others on um, podcasts, so I won't touch that. But uh, um, in terms of enforcement of those awards, um, I think the, the, mo- what the most interesting cases going on right now um, involve awards um, against Spain. Um, to set the stage for all this, um, before the, the financial crisis in 2008, um, Spain, like many other countries in Europe, had a regime of you know, um, tax breaks and incentives designed to encourage investment in renewable energy. Um, they had a very robust regime in place. <clears throat> but Spain got hit much harder than almost any other country in Europe um, as a result of the financial crisis because they had their own real estate crisis, um, which hit their economy much harder. Um, and you know, as a result of that, that Spain decided that in order to um, pay to um, dig themselves out of um, of the position that they were in, they revoked pretty much all of the. Um, the incentive regime. Um, and so, you know, many um, investors, mostly European investors in renewable energy projects in Spain, brought um, investor state arbitration claims against Spain. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I've lost count of how many of them there are. There are a very large number of them. Um, and, you know, those cases have been going on long enough now that a lot of those like, have resulted in awards. Um, well, the, the European Union has taken the position that um, investor state arbitrations and the, result, the awards that result from them um, are, um, they're not enforceable, they're not valid because they impinge on the supremacy of the European courts to interpret issues of European law. There's some other issues that are other grounds for objection that the EU has raised. I'm not an expert in all that, so I don't, I won't get into it and get it wrong. Um, but, uh, the, the, what it means is these awards against Spain are not enforceable in the EU. How does that come about? What, what's the logic? What's the, well, the, the, one of the arguments, uh, again, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this because I'm not an expert in EU law. But uh, one of the arguments is that um, the, um, the state's party to bilateral investment treaties that gave rise to these awards um, could not bind themselves to arbitration um, in these circumstances because doing so essentially violated the supremacy of the EU courts. They were ceding sovereignty in a way oh. they weren't permitted to do. So, so their, their uh, treaty agreements, which established the EU and the EU courts, trump 
whatever investment, or so the argument goes, Trump, whatever right. uh, the country member of the EU agreed to in its investment treaties, I guess. In, 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 in essence, yes, that's exactly it. So, so you can't enforce a, award, a, a treaty award against Spain in the European courts. You can enforce um, these awards in the English courts. Um, you know, but, uh, before this litigation started in the United States, there were award creditors who brought proceedings to recognize and enforce these awards against Spain in the UK. And the UK's position, which I'll oversimplify, um, but which I think is right, is that, look, whatever your, the EU's position on EU law may be, the UK has a treaty obligation to recognize and enforce these awards, and we're going to comply with our treaty obligations. So the UK is a friendly jurisdiction for enforcement. And the big question now is, is the United States going to be a friendly jurisdiction or not? Um, there are at least three cases pending in the federal courts in D.C. where award creditors have sought to sought recognition of awards against Spain. Um, and the courts have gone in two different, um, that, that court has gone in two different directions. Um, in one case, a DC district judge, um, ruled that, uh, the award could not be enforced in the U S and in the other case, a different judge on that same court ruled that it could be. Um, so now those cases are all consolidated for appeal in the DC circuit. And, you know, the, um, Spain is making the arguments you would predict that it would make. European Union has like made the su submitted as amicus has submitted um, the arguments that you would expect them to make. But what's surprising to me and what what I find very troubling in those cases is that the United States has now weighed in. Um, you mean uh, the the D Department of Justice or Solicitor General? <laughs> Uh, no, the Department of Justice, like, I mean, the names on the brief are DOJ lawyers, um, has filed an amicus brief in those consolidated appeals in which, I mean, it's, it's not, they're essentially siding with Spain. Um, they're taking the position that um, the courts have to, even when the parties have agreed that the question of whether Spain did or didn't agree to arbitrate the dispute is something that the arbitrators have to decide. And even when the parties have agreed that once the arbitrators have made that decision, that decision can't be reviewed um, again. You know, the state that loses the case doesn't get a second bite at the apple in recognition proceedings. Even when the parties have agreed to all of those things, when it's a, a sovereign um, who lost and who the ward is against, the U.S. courts have to undertake their own independent inquiry into, you know, whether the sovereign was authorized to um, consent to the arbitration in the first place. But isn't that isn't that an issue that you think you would think would have been already litigated in the arbitration proceeding? It, it, it's always litigated in the arbitration proceeding, even when the state debtor doesn't show up in the proceeding. The um, the arbitrators have to decide that issue. The parties agreed that that was an issue that the arbitrators would decide. And as I said a minute ago, parties also agreed that once the arbitrators decided that issue, it couldn't be relitigated. Um, or if it was relitigated, it could only be relitigated in the 
in an annulment proceeding, what's called an annulment proceeding that takes place in the courts of the seat of the arbitration, but not like in a subsequent proceeding to recognize and enforce the award. And the U.S. government is essentially saying, you know, whatever the parties agreed to, whatever the investors' expectations may have been about where that issue was going to be decided and, you know, whether it could be reviewed again, doesn't matter. Um, if an award creditor brings an award against the sovereign to the courts of the United States, not only can the U.S. courts consider whether the sovereign properly agreed to arbitrate, the U.S. courts have to. Um, and I've litigated that issue. I mean, it may not sound like that big of a deal, but uh, um, you know, you, th- it can take years and cost millions of dollars in legal fees to litigate that. I mean, imagine that um, the minister of the economy for country X um, signed the, um, the agreements which contain the um, consent to arbitrate. Um, the US, what, what the U.S. is advocating is that there has to be a mini trial in the United States courts over whether the minister of the economy of country X had authority under the laws of country X to do that. Right. Well, this is, seems to be the second example you cited where the uh, United States government has taken positions which are uh, not friendly to the historic regimes about the way sovereign debt litigation is, is conducted and, and pursued or, or claims against sovereigns. We're talking about investor state here. I'm, I'm afraid that's right. I mean, it, it wasn't until this amicus brief got filed, and it was only two or three weeks ago. Um, But it wasn't until that amicus brief was filed that it became clear to me that, you know, the United States government is now retreating from um, this regime that, you know, the U.S. played an important, like a leadership role in sort of putting in place um, during the second half of the 20th century. And I I find it very troubling. Right. Any other... uh Cases you're involved in are particularly interesting issues relating to investor state disputes, especially in enforcement of awards that we should talk about before moving on to the third category. All right. Well, I mean, these are not all of these are investor state disputes. Some are investor state disputes. Some of them are just commercial arbitrations. But there are many, very, very large arbitral awards and judgments outstanding against Russia. Um, um, I'm like m- many people who are listening to the podcast will have heard of Yukos. Yes, um, that award, like that award, was rendered ten years ago mm-hmm. um, in 2014. Um, in efforts to enforce that award, are really only now getting off the ground. Ten years later, right? But that award is for fifty billion dollars, um, and it's not alone. I mean, there are a lot of other judgments and awards against Russia. We have a case on behalf of a, where we got a, a billion dollar, $1.1 billion award on behalf of a Ukrainian bank against Russia. But I mean, what, to me, what's interesting about those cases is, you know, I think for our client, um, it's possible to think about enforcing a billion dollar award against Russia, right? But I can't even wrap my mind around what enforcing a $50 billion award against Russia looks like, given that, um, you know, 
all or substantially all of Russia's offshore assets are frozen. Well, that that should be mean they're easy to find and and they can't be moved. I mean, why does that why doesn't that make your job easier? Right, well, they're easy to find and they can't be moved, but they definitely haven't been earmarked to pay Russia's creditors. Well, that doesn't seem. I mean, there's talk you read about it about well, we're just going to take all those assets and use it to fund uh, Ukraine's defense. Right, right. I mean, and I think I, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but uh, you know, I would expect that. Uh, if the United States or any countries in the European Union decide to expropriate those frozen assets, the first place that money is going to go is to fund Ukraine's defense. Second place that money is going to go would be to rebuild Ukraine. Um, I don't know where paying Russia's creditors falls in the waterfall, but it's pretty far down the list. Um, so, what I, so what's interesting to me there is, you know, what does a creditor with a gigantic $50 billion award against Russia, what are they going to do? Um, that's, to me, the, 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 the other really interesting. And, and, and we haven't mentioned the uh, very, very large award that Burford funded against Argentina, something like $16 billion that they got. Uh, Burford, of course, being the, a publicly traded, I think, the largest litigation finance firm in the world. That's right. Well, I mean, the, the clients were Peterson and Eaton Park. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like, that's right. Peterson and Eaton Park got a historically large judgment against Argentina um, in late 20, uh, late, late last year. Um, and, I mean, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, I've been conflicted out of getting yeah. involved in that party yet. But, uh, well, may- maybe this would be a good point to sort of talk in general about. How you go about enforcing wars against countries, against sovereigns? I assume it's not as simple as, uh, you know, you just get rid of uh, some type of attachment or execution of judgment and you walk over to Citibank and you serve it on them. And they look and they say, oh, we've got this uh, account here uh, for that country's money. There's a few hundred million in it. Here you go. I assume it's not that simple. No, it's almost never that simple. Um, there were a few cases early on when all this started 25 years ago, when, you know, creditors got lucky and they were able to find, you know, um, and execute on large assets. But, uh, you know, for for at least the last 20 years, I mean, that, that almost never happens. Um, every case is different. Um, but if there's sort of a general underlying principle to successful enforcement against, against the sovereign, I would say, it's um, studying the state, understanding the Achilles heel of the state and the people who run it and are responsible for um, you know, making the decision to settle or not to settle um, and you know, seizing on that. Um, and, but what it, what, but it looks, what it looks like in individual cases, you know, every case is different. When, when you say uh, understanding the individuals uh, in the country, I assume that means understanding the politics. Right. Because uh, I remember when our partner, Mark McNeil, got a $2 billion judgment against India, uh, which India, they didn't immediately write a check. They uh, refused to pay. Our client was Cairn, a UK energy company. Um it, be, it was kind of a political hot potato in India, especially after we undertook efforts to attach 
Air India jetliners right. at JFK. And then that suddenly was a hot issue in domestic Indian politics. People were asking, how did things get to this point? How could, how, why haven't, you know, you had an opposition, uh, opposition parties saying, this is ridiculous. Our airliners are being attached. Something's got to be done about this. And, and of course, something was worked out and the judgment, judgment was paid. I mean, I assume that's the sort of thing that you're referring to. That's exactly right. And then, and that was my case. Um, Mark got uh, our enforcement team involved um, after he obtained that award. And we brought a alter ego action in New York um, against India and Air India. Um, and I mean, the way you t- tell it is exactly right. I mean, that it was the fat filing of that Air India case against the backdrop of India trying to privatize Air India because the process for selling Air India was underway while all that was happening. As, and as you can imagine, the would-be bidders on Air India weren't happy about the prospect of, uh, um, of uh, Cairn seizing assets of Air India. And you know, very quickly, you know, that created the political will within India to settle with Cairn. Unless there's something else, I was going to go to the third category of other types of uh, litigation against sovereigns. Well, I, I was going to say one more thing could be because um, it's a fun story and I, I've told it many times, but I love to tell it. I mean, I think to me, the best example of creating leverage um, and bringing a sovereign state to the negotiating table um, without like attaching assets. Uh, was something that uh, um, Deborah O'Gorman and I, uh, it's a counsel who, um, who works with me in New York, um, did about 10 years ago against Argentina. Um, but uh, you know, around 2012, 2013, investigative journalists in Argentina um, started reporting on um, what appeared to be you know, a, a, a racket of um, people close to the president enriching themselves with bogus public service contracts and then you know laundering the funds out of Argentina through vehicles that were set up by a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca that nobody had ever heard of it. Um, and so you know we decided to pull on the string um, and you know we through discovery litigation primarily in the United States um, were able to, substantiate these allegations, um, you know, prove up much of the trail of misappropriated funds and, you know, kickback payments that were being made to the son of the president back in Argentina. And because papers in U.S. litigation are public, um, the Argentinian newspapers, like, picked up on the story. In fact, it was front page news for over a year. Um, And I'm convinced that it was that story, right? And just sort of the exasperation that Argentinian voters had with corruption um, in the Peronist party that caused the Peronists to lose the presidential election in 2015. And it's not by accident that, you know, within weeks of um, that election outcome, um, we were successful in settling Elliott's two and a half billion dollar claim against Argentina. Amazing. Maybe you changed Argentine political history, Dennis. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so the, the third category here, uh, other types of claims against sovereigns. You mentioned the AT1 bonds case, case being pursued in Switzerland against the, the Swiss government relating to those bonds that were written down to zero. 
uh, it's a claim of uh, billions of dollars which were prosecuted. And you mentioned there may be a claim that you're bringing in the U.S. Uh, but let's talk about the claim against Iran that was just filed, uh, which seeks to uh, use these, uh, what you refer to as the legislation that makes it somewhat easier to bring claims uh, related to terrorist activity or easier to collect. Tell us about that. Tell us about that case against Iran concerning the October 7th tragedy. Sure. So, I mean, again, to set the background a little bit, um, the United States actually has several statutory regimes that make it easier um, for victims of terrorist attacks um, to you know, obtain judgments um, um, to compensate them for their injuries. Um, our case against Iran relies on one of them. Um, there, other people have brought or are talking about bringing other cases under other statutory regimes. But um, our case against Iran um, relies on a special exception to sovereign immunity um, that Congress put in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act about 20 years ago, um, which essentially strips the immunity of a country like Iran that the United States government has determined is a state sponsor of terrorism. So the, the, the immunity that they would ordinarily have from suits, including like suits for providing financial support um, for terrorist activity, that immunity is taken away. And so it makes it easy to hail the sovereigns into court. Um, I, for anybody who hasn't had occasion to read the complaint and is interested, I would strongly encourage them to do it. Um, but, uh, um, I mean, the stories of um, the 67 individuals we're representing in that case um, are absolutely tragic. I mean, absolutely heartrending. Um, and should, I think, you know, cause any reader to be completely outraged by, you know, what, what, what Hamas did and, 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 and how they're like, how all this went down. But the Iranian government has made proving up the connection between Iran and the, like the October 7th attacks easy, right? Because you know, government spokespeople have announced publicly, yes. We financed those attacks. Really? Yes. Because I, I, I have, there have been news reports that people hear that uh, the Iranians were surprised, that this surprised them, that Hamas got ahead of them. I mean, no question that Iran supports Hamas and finances Hamas. But I've seen reports that, and again, I don't know what the basis for this is, that the Iranians were surprised by this, that the right. Hamas got out over the, got ahead of uh, Iran on that. Right. Well, there have been a number of statements by senior Iranian officials in which they take credit for providing financial support for the for the attacks, right? Which is going to be a critical issue in the case. I mean, you have to establish a causal link between the financial support and the injuries. Um, it there. Look, I, don't make no mistake. I mean, there's going to be plenty of work to do um, in developing and proving up that case of trial um, to connect the injuries to Iran's financial support. But uh, those kinds of statements. Do you expect that Iran will appear and defend or do you think they'll default? They, I, I expect them to default. Um, to my knowledge, they've never appeared in any 
um, any case like that that's been brought in the U.S. so far. So if they default, do you, do you still have to prove liability or do you just prove damages at that point? Uh, you, prove, you have to prove causation. You have to prove damages. Um, and I, there's a statutory regime governing damages as well. So it's not just sort of a, it's not a traditional, it doesn't look like a traditional case where you're just, where you have to prove up all of the elements of damages. But, um, and, and that will go on for a number of years because it's going to take us a year, I would expect, to even serve process on your mind. Um, we have to go through the State Department. The State Department has to deliver papers to Iran's embassy in Switzerland. It's a complicated process. Well, you, I mean, you'll eventually comply with all that and you'll get them served. What, what do you think is going to be the biggest single challenge to getting relief for the plaintiffs in that case? Um, but connecting the plaintiffs' individual injuries to financial support from Iran. Um, Iran did us a favor by essentially admitting to, you know, the, the, the front end of the pipeline that the money was coming into Hamas from Iran, but we're going to have to connect that money to the individual plaintiff's injuries. Um, we're going to have to tell the stories of who injured those people and under what circumstances and where and when. Um, and that's going to be difficult. Um, I'm confident that we'll do it, but that's going to be difficult. And it's going to take us a number of years. Um, and then once we're past that, um, then always the hardest thing in these cases is collecting. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a widely held belief that it's impossible to collect against Iran. And that's just not true. Have you collected against Iran? Absolutely. We have a yeah. $2.5 billion arbitral award case in which we're, we've got collection proceedings pending in nine countries now. Um, I don't want to get into any of the details, but uh, we've already secured several hundred million um, dollars of uh, Iranian assets um, to satisfy that award. And we're only two years into it. But Dennis, this is, uh, it's clear from speaking with you that uh, sovereign disputes litigation is a uh, intellectually challenging, fascinating, complex area covering a lot of different subject matters. We very much appreciated hear, hearing from you. Thanks very much for participating in Law Disrupted. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dennis Horansky, who is my partner at Queen Emanuel and who is an expert in sovereign disputes litigation. And that's what we've been speaking to him about. This is John Quinn, and this has been Law Disrupted. Thank you for listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your chosen podcast app. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, you can sign up for email alerts at our website, law-disrupted.fm, or follow me on x at jbqlaw or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in.